All right, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 21. If, uh, if you haven't turned there already, if you have one of our welcome table Bibles, it starts on page 15. Abraham has been this central figure, right? The first, if you remember, we've been in Genesis for a while. The first, first 11 chapters really covered the entire history of the world. Uh, and then it zoomed in onto one family and, and namely one person, Abraham. And so we've been with Abraham sort of in, the, in, our, in our central view here since chapter 12, and, uh, and, and he's going to transition out here soon in chapter 25, and then we're going we're gonna to move into the next uh, 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 central figure, which is Isaac. And, um, but, but ever since we've been introduced to Abraham, we, we've, been, we've been waiting with him, right? We've been feeling this anticipation. We read all these promises that God made to Abraham in chapter 12, and we just keep waiting. We just keep waiting for them to be fulfilled, waiting, waiting, waiting. And one of those promises uh, that has been uh, this huge one that Abraham is waiting for is the promise of a son. Well, Abraham waited 25 years for that promise. We've been waiting like three months or something like that. As we've been going through, we're finally there. Today, that promised son will be born in chapter 21. We get to read about Isaac's birth, but... For such a huge promise and a long period of waiting, this announcement of Isaiah's birth is really pretty anticlimactic. It's, it's, it's told in this matter-of-fact sort of way, and it actually only takes up seven verses out of the 34 verses that we're going to cover this morning. Just the first part. It's like 20%. Okay? For something so huge and, and, and impactful in his life, it's just kind of it's mentioned, and then, and then they keep going. And that's by design, though, because as we'll see in the rest of this chapter and in the final chapters of Abraham's life, and really in all of the rest of Scripture, Abraham's story is really one of waiting and trusting in God to keep his promises more than it is of seeing and celebrating those promises fulfilled in his own lifetime. Abraham's story, like most of the stories in Scripture, is about growing in dependence upon and in confidence in God in the midst of our trials that test our faith. So, is your life filled with waiting, trusting, trials? You're going to want to pay attention to what God has to say to us through his word this morning. I want to pray and ask him to do that, and then we'll get into the message. Father, by means of your light, we see light. And we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ through Abraham's story this morning. Amen. A lot of, this, a lot of, uh, of the Bible, a lot of scripture is uh, written in narrative form, right? We've been going through Genesis and we're basically reading stories. These are historical accounts, but they're told to us in story form. And when we read uh, narrative passages in the Bible, it can be easy for us to focus on the human character as sort of the central figure and, and sort of maybe even un, un, unwittingly uh, put God as, as a supporting role, right? Sort of out in the periphery, just kind of putting his hand in where he needs to and maybe a foot here or there, right? And... Um, but we keep this, 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 this person as the central figure. But we have that flipped, right? God is the central 
character. He's the central figure in all of Scripture, and everything that we read ultimately is teaching us something about him. The Bible is God's revelation to us, but he's not just revealing historical events, although they're there. We're going to read something that really happened this morning. He's not just uh, revealing principles for living, although those are there, because he teaches us how to live for him and with him. Ultimately, God, through his word, is revealing himself. He's revealing himself to us in a way we could never know him without it. God is not simple to understand. Let me just make that clear up front. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God, right? But when he does reveal things about himself to us in his word, when I, when I see something in there that, that God is, is teaching me about himself, I find it helpful to try to describe those things as simply as possible so that I can remember them because they're, they're important, they're vital to our faith. They're important for us to constantly Think about God in the ways that he reveals himself to us. If God shows us something about himself, he wants us to remember that thing. He wants us to know that thing so that it, it shapes and forms and transforms our lives. Take God's goodness, for example. If you were on our Zoom a, a few weeks ago, we, we covered this. Psalm 119.68. I, I want to just challenge all of us to memorize this verse this year. Okay. It says, very simply, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Now, it's important to constantly think of God as good so that when bad things happen, we can know that God is only ever going to do something good in the midst of that bad thing. And we can call the bad thing bad and still call God good. So to put simply, although I don't think I can do better than Scripture, and I don't want to, okay, so remember the passage b before you remember this phrase, but this is something that, that has really helped me. Uh, God only ever is good, God only ever does good, and he's never not good. See, I need to add that last one on the end because um, even though it's implied, I need to say it out loud to myself. God is never not good. So when I'm tempted to think that he's not, I go back to Psalm 119.68. God tells me this is who he is. He's good, and he does good. Last week, we saw the devastating judgment that God brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness there. And one of the phrases I repeated last week was this, if the judge of all the earth calls something sin, then that thing is sin and it always will be sin, right? It's important to have that clearly in my mind when I'm tempted to think otherwise because sin is tempting. It's enticing. I'm tempted in my own life to look at sin and call it good when it's not. I need to know that if God calls it sin, it's always going to be sin, and it never won't be sin. In Genesis 19, or excuse me, here in Genesis uh, 21, we're going to see another simple and yet incredibly important truth about God, and this is the main thought, the main idea for the, for the whole time this morning. Here it is. God does what he says. God does what he says. We're going to see this over and over in this chapter. We don't even have to look any further than the first two verses to start seeing this. Look with me, Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. 
three times. Three times in these first two verses, the author makes it clear that the things that happened happened in the way God said they would happen. Back in Genesis 18.10, God said to Abraham, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. Genesis 18.14, God said, is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you and in about a year she will have a son. Same language we just read in those first two verses. The Lord came at the appointed time and opened Sarah's barren womb so she could become pregnant and bear Abraham a son in his old age. God does what he says. Look at verse 3. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him. He named him Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him and as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. After finally seeing with their own eyes that God does what he says, Abraham responded with obedience, and Sarah responded with praise. Back in chapter 17, God told Abraham, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. Before, the, before she was ever even pregnant, God already had a name for this child. You're going to name him Isaac, Abraham, and I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Here in verse 3, what does Abraham do? Names his son Isaac, just as God has told him. Chapter 17, God also gave Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision and said that if any male in Abraham's household isn't circumcised, that male would be cut off from the covenant community and from receiving the promises of the covenant. That's sort of a big deal then if Isaac is the one that's supposed to receive the promises of the covenant, right? He's got to be circumcised. Otherwise, he's, he's out. So what does Abraham do? He circumcises him on the eighth day just as God commanded him. Abraham responds with obedience. Meanwhile, Sarah is 99 years old and a first-time mom. Mothers, you want to, 99, okay? She's 99 years old. She's a first-time mom. And she, and she marveled. She marveled at what God did because she saw it that God did what he said he would do. And so as she cradled God's promise in her arms, her own baby, whose name means laughter, Sarah couldn't help but laugh and invite others to laugh with her. Only this time, her laughter wasn't out of disbelief like it had been when God had first told her she was going to have a baby in her old age, that she would give Sarah, uh, uh, Abraham a son. This time... It was the laughter of joy in the Lord who kept his promise. God does what he says. But her laughter didn't last a long time, at least not in the course of this narrative. She wasn't laughing anymore when Abraham's other son started causing problems. Look at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. 
So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, don't be distressed about the boy and, your, and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. Now, in that day and culture, a child was typically weaned from nursing around two or three years of age, and it was considered to be this rite of passage into childhood, and so that's why Abraham is throwing this feast on the, on the day that Isaac was weaned. And, and when Isaac was born, Sarah laughed with joy. And then we get to the party here, and now somebody else is laughing. It's the same word in Hebrew, but here there's a twist because it's not laughter of joy, it's mockery. Verse 9 tells us who the mocker is, but you'll notice, look, in this entire passage, the author never uses his name. He's simply known as the son or the boy, and that's purposeful. Because by not using his name and only using Isaac's name, whenever he refers to Abraham's sons, Isaac gets named over and over and the other one doesn't, the author's helping us see that Isaac is actually the one through whom the promise goes. He is the one chosen to carry on the covenant. So who's the son that's never mentioned by name? It's Ishmael, right? The one that Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham, as verse 9 puts it. Now that's the only time in, th in this group of verses that we just read that Hagar's name is mentioned in, the, in this section and that's purposeful as well because Sarah's not happy with her. She's not happy with her son. But Sarah's frustration, if you remember, she, she got herself into this mess. This is her own doing, right? Remember back in Genesis 16 when Sarah was still unable to have children and yet God had promised a son to Abraham. She knew that, but she was barren, and so she, what did she do? She gave Abraham Hagar, her Egyptian slave, as a wife so that, so that she could give him a son. She says, perhaps God will give us a family through her, or per perhaps I can give us a family through her. Remember how we said back then when, when we try to take matters into our own hands, we just tend to create more problems for ourselves? We get to see that now. That, that's not just a, 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 an empty warning. That's a reality. What Sarah did in Genesis 16 led to the problem that we see here in Genesis 21. But hold on, because if you remember back from chapter 12 when Abraham lied to the Egyptian officials and he told them that Sarah was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him, what did Pharaoh do? He kicked them out of Egypt, but he sent them away with uh, uh, sheep or uh, herds and flocks and and slaves, Egyptian slaves, and that's probably where Sarah acquired Hagar in the first place. So the problem that we see here, this mess that we see in chapter twenty-one, is actually a culmination of a problem that Abraham created for himself through a poor decision back in chapter twelve, and compounded by a poor decision that he and Sarah made together in chapter sixteen. It's a giant mess. What is the problem that we see here in chapter 21? Well, Ishmael is the older brother and therefore the, the lawful heir of Abraham's inheritance. He's the firstborn. But Isaac 
is the promised heir of the covenant. This is a problem. Ishmael's about 16 or 17 years old here. And, and it, so let me just kind of put this into perspective so that we can at least try to understand. Re- remember, when we, under, we, we need to be able to empathize. We need to be able to understand with people's mindsets. That doesn't mean that we agree with them, okay? But we need to at least understand. If you saw someone else's 17-year-old son mocking your three-year-old son, you might behave like Sarah did, right? We can at least understand part of her way of thinking there. But it wasn't just the the mocking that Sarah was upset about. She didn't want the son of her slave to be a co-heir with her son Isaac, and so she told Abraham to drive them out of the family. It's the same Hebrew language that's used in Genesis 3 when God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, and then again in Genesis 4 when he banished Cain from the land after Cain killed his brother Abel. Kick them out. This is what Sarah wants. Hagar was Sarah's maidservant, but, but when Sarah gave her to Abraham back in chapter 16 as his wife, her status changed. That meant that any children that she had, because she was a wife, uh, any children that she had with Abraham became his legitimate heirs of all that he owned. And since Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son, as his firstborn son, Ishmael held the rights to the greatest share of the inheritance. So Sarah resented Hagar and Ishmael, and in her resentment, she degraded Hagar back to, to the slave status and called her a slave, and, and she degraded Ishmael by not even using his name. She's called him the son of the slave. The only way Ishmael would lose his rights as the firstborn son was if Abraham divorced Hagar and sent, set her free from slavery to Sarah. By, by driving them out, both of those things were accomplished. It was, it was a divorce and it was a setting free of slavery. But even though Ishmael wasn't Sarah's son, he was Abraham's son, Right? Wouldn't it be hard for you to drive out your own flesh and blood? Verse 11 says that this was very distressing for Abraham because that's exactly what Abraham was forced to do here. The Hebrew literally says it was very bad in the eyes of Abraham. But God told Abraham, don't be distressed. Do what Sarah said. Now, we just need to pause right here. And acknowledge that this whole scene is one gigantic mess, right? Aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't pretty things up? Aren't you glad that it's honest about just, just the, the, the stuff that we get ourselves into? It's a picture of what happens when people try to do things their own way instead of God's way. We just, we just keep snowballing things, Right? And if we're honest, we have to admit that this hits close to home because we see messes like this that we get ourselves into all the time. This is what we're prone to do. We, 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 be in, in the, uh, is it Be Thou My Vision? Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? We sing that song. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? There's a lot of wandering here, and we do the same thing. We know the frustration and the grief of infighting and broken relationships, and we understand the pain and the scars that separation brings. We, we may not, uh, or what may not be so easy then to understand, though, is that 
uh, is why God told Abraham to listen to Sarah when she clearly had animosity toward Hagar and Ishmael. Why does God say, yeah, go for it. It's okay. When she's like, she's super mad. She has hostility towards them. This is where we need to remember the things that we know about God. Okay? This is why God has given us his word, to teach us who he is, so that when we get to a passage like this, we're just like, what is he doing? We can know. We need to remember that God is not condoning sin here. God never condones sin. Not ever. Remember, if the judge of all the earth calls something sin, it's sin, and it always will be sin. Right? Nor is God playing favorites here. God himself tells us multiple times in his word he shows no partiality. If you've ever felt that people who blatantly sin have it easy while your life is really hard even though you're trying your best to obey God, you need to go home today before the, you know, the big game later tonight. Go read Psalm 73 and just let God's word correct your heart and your mind. That's one of my favorite psalms because I need that truth. Asaph's words will convict and comfort your heart. We have to keep the bigger picture in view if we want to be able to make sense of the immediate picture. God is not being passive or turning a blind eye to Sarah's animosity toward Hagar and Ishmael. He's not ignoring slavery or polygamy or divorce, all of those things that clearly go against his created design for human relationships. We don't have time to get into all the nuances of how his grace works in those things. He's not overlooking these things. The only ones who condone sin and encourage more of it are sinners and the serpent with all of his demons. But those who follow Christ, listen, we are no longer sinners condemned by God's justice. We are sinners saved by God's grace. We are saints now in the family of God being remade into the likeness of Christ. Even though we continue to struggle with sin, God continues to free us from the power of the sin that remains in us. When we see a mess like this that just seems to get messier, we have to remember this. God is not rewarding sin. He's redeeming sinners. God is not rewarding sin. He's redeeming sinners. And this plan of redemption involves, this is the beauty of it, Sending his eternal son to be born into a sinful family in order to die for sinners to set them free from their sin and to raise from the dead so that redeemed sinners can truly live with him and for him forever. God comes straight into the mess. And he's the one that fixes it. We need to remember that the sins that we are seeing Sarah commit here, and this is... We have to go read Romans 3 to make sense of this. But we need to remember that the sins we're seeing Sarah commit here are sins that Christ paid for on the cross 2,000 years later. God does not condemn her in these sins. He rescues her from them. He's not rewarding sinners. He's rewarding sin. He's redeeming sinners When a brother or sister in Christ's life 
is a mess. How does that mess shape the way that you view that person? Do you condemn them in it? Or do you remember that Christ has already paid for the sins that they are committing? We don't look forward 2,000 years. We look backwards 2,000 years. See that Christ's payment on the cross was enough. We must not be too quick to drive someone out of the family of God just because their life is a mess and it's infringing on ours. Passages like Galatians 6, I'm sorry, they don't allow us to do that. So if that's what you think, you, you need to go read Galatians 6. And again, let God's word correct your heart. Instead, we're to prayerfully and gently come alongside this person in their mess and seek to be an instrument of God's grace to help them fix their eyes back on Christ, the author and the perfecter of their faith. God works his sovereign grace into the messes that we create so that we might grow in our dependence upon him and our confidence in him. And guess what? He gets the glory. God told Abraham to listen to Sarah because the end result was in accordance with God's good plan. Back in chapter 15, God promised Abraham that one from Abraham's own body would be his heir. And in chapter 17, he made it clear that heir would be Isaac, not Ishmael. And that's what he reminded Abraham here of in verse 12. Do what Sarah says because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Not because Sarah is right, not because what Sarah is doing is good, but because I am working my plan, plan to redeem sinners. But in chapter 17, God also promised Abraham that he wouldn't abandon Ishmael. He wouldn't abandon Ishmael completely. And that because Ishmael was Abraham's son, God would bless Ishmael and multiply him greatly and make him into a great nation. God reminded Abraham of that right here in verse 13. Why? Because God does what he says. God does what he says. And so Abraham listened to God and he did what God told him to do. Look at verse 14. Early in the morning, Abraham got up took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she left the boy under the, one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance, about a bowshot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. If you remember from chapter 16, this this whole scene right here ought to, ought to bring us back to that picture in chapter 16. They're really similar. Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael in chapter 16. Sarah mistreated her so much that Hagar ran away. She fled into the wilderness and was heading back to Egypt when the angel of the Lord found her by a well and told her to go back and submit to Sarah's authority because God had heard Hagar's cry of affliction and promised to make her offspring too many to count. This is what God told her in chapter 16. And so in that chapter, back in that uh, 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 story, she called that well, Bir Lahai Roi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. And so then she returned to Abraham's household and she gave birth to Ishmael, whose name means God hears. God saw her pain. God heard her cry 
and God cared enough to intervene and bless her. But imagine Hagar's despair this time as she is now once again in the wilderness because the same God who had told her to go back to Abraham's household now agreed that she and her son needed to leave. Water was in short supply in the wilderness, and so when the bread and water that Abraham gave her ran out, Hagar left her son, whose name means God hears, under this fleeting shade of a bush, and she went far enough away so that she couldn't hear him suffer and die. She drowned out the sound of his crying with her own weeping. Surely in that moment, Hagar must have been wishing that the God who sees me and the God who hears would once again step in and intervene. And guess what? It's exactly what he did. Look at verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him in the land of Egypt. The God who heard Hagar's cry of affliction back in chapter 16 is the same God who heard her son's cry of affliction here in chapter 21, and he reaffirmed the promise that he had made to Hagar already. Chapter 16, he told her that he would greatly multiply her offspring, and here he told her that he would make her son into a great nation. God does what he says. God does what he says. Not only did God provide for their immediate needs by opening Hagar's eyes and letting her see now this well that was in front of her so that she could give her son a much-needed drink, but God then also remained with Ishmael as the boy grew into a man and settled in the wilderness of Paran, and then Hagar got a wife for him from Egypt where she was from. All of that was in keeping with what God had already said would happen back in chapter 16. He told Hagar that Ishmael would be like a wild donkey, which in Hebrew sounds similar to the word uh, of Paran. And Paran was outside of the promised land, so, and so was Egypt. All of this reinforces why God told Abraham to listen to Sarah right here back in verses 12 and 13. Ishmael would, would receive earthly blessing because Abraham was his earthly father, was his physical father but he would not receive the covenant blessing because Isaac was the son through whom the promises of the covenant would be traced. God does what he says. We ought to note here that God is not merely providing for Hagar and Ishmael because of their association with Abraham. That's part of it. uh, Ishmael's father may have been Abraham, but we need to remember that God created these two. He's their creator. They were both made in God's image, as all human beings are, regardless of whether or not they are God's covenant people. God wasn't being cold-hearted or callous when he told Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael needed to leave in verses 12 and 13. They had to leave because that was part of God's overall redemptive plan. But God, who remained with Abraham 
and Isaac and Jacob and continued on through that, guess what? He's omnipresent. He could be wherever he wants. He's all over. He's everywhere, all the time. He was also with Ishmael. And he cared for him. God went with Ishmael and Hagar because he cared for them and he created them. Not just because of their association with Abraham. This ought to help us keep from being cold-hearted and calloused when we're in situations where separation is inevitable and necessary. I realize those words are basically synonyms. Just kind of, it's redundant. But listen, we get in those situations, right? It's hard. We can't, just because of our sin, because of the way things are, we can't fully reconcile. Separation is inevitable. Even if it must happen because of the messiness of our sin, and even if we don't fully understand how it fits into God's plan, we still need to understand that we're separating from fellow image bearers whom God created. And that means that even in the midst of separation, that they still have infinite value and worth. We should never degrade them because we want to cast them out or because we need to. So we shouldn't shouldn't wish for that. Instead, we ought to long for God to care for them and to open their eyes to see that he is with them and really, truly, that they would come to see and know the goodness of God through the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel. If we were, if this situation was today and Hagar and Ishmael had to leave, boy, I hope that we would be praying for them to know Jesus and to be forgiven. Let's look at this last section here. Starting in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I've been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech replied, "I, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. After they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in, in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now, at first, this might seem like we've, we've like seen on the last one, and we go to the new thing, right? It just kind of feels like it's out of place in the midst of everything else we've read. 
But back in verse 14, we're told that Hagar wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. And then in verse 19, we're told that God opened her eyes and she saw a well and gave Ishmael a drink from that well. In this last section, Abraham and Abimelech are in this area that was mentioned where, they, where uh, Hagar and Ishmael fled to. And they're settling this dispute over possibly the same well. Abimelech made this astute observation about Abraham. He said, God is with you in everything you do. Do people say that about you? God's with you in everything you do. Abimelech knew this through firsthand experience back in chapter 20, right? Abraham prayed to the Lord on Abimelech's behalf. It's again, it's another story where Abraham lied to the, to the area king, said, said uh, Sarah was his sister, and the king took her in, and then God said no, and, and the, uh, Abraham's lie was exposed, and, but God said, you need to give her back, and Abraham will pray, with, pray for you, and I'll, I will heal you and your household. And, and the healing came, that came was he opened their wombs again so they could have children. Abimelech had been blessed by God because of Abraham, but before that blessing came, he'd been deceived by Abraham. And so here in verse 23, Abimelech initiated this covenant with Abraham so that his family would be blessed for generations to come. He told Abraham to go under oath. Listen, swear by God to me and agree, uh, and, and, and agree that you and your descendants will honor the relationship with me and my descendants. He says, uh, he says, swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me. That in the Hebrew says that you won't deal deceitfully with me. See why uh, Abimelech put the language in there, right? Go back to chapter 20. Don't deal deceitfully with me, Abraham. You be loyal to me and my family. We'll be loyal to you and your family. In chapter 20, Abimelech was loyal to give Sarah back to Abraham after he found out that she was Abraham's wife and Abraham had lied to him. And by making Abraham swear not to break the agreement, Abimelech was, was making him swear, again, not to deal falsely with him. Abraham agreed to it, but before they ratified their agreement with the covenant, Abraham took this opportunity to complain about a well that Abimelech's servants had seized. If the covenant is meant to prevent conflict between them, then they need to resolve this issue, right? If Abraham's going to stay in that land, remember, this isn't his land yet. He's living there as a resident alien. He's a visitor, a sojourner. But if he's going to stay there in that land, his family needs a water source. Because as we saw with Hagar and Ishmael, this area is scarce with water. And since Abimelech had granted Abraham permission to live in the land, he also would have granted him access to water. And so this news that his servants had seized the well from Abraham was a, a, a total surprise to Abimelech. I don't know anything about this. You didn't say anything to me about it. And if you remember from chapter 20, Abimelech is the one that's always above reproach. It's no different here. There's no reason to believe that he's lying or being deceitful. <clears throat> So the two of them entered a covenant together, and Abraham gave Abimelech flocks and herds, and then he separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and he gave them to Abimelech as this special gift, this, this witness, 
that Abraham had dug the well that he, and, and that he had the right to use it. And so Abimelech agreed, and the two of them made a covenant there, and then that's how the well got its name. Beersheba means the well of the oath or the well of the seven. It's, it's a word play on all that was, was just taking place there. Back in chapter 12, God told Abraham that he would bless the nations through him. And here at the end of chapter 21, a Philistine king received the blessing of a covenant of peace with Abraham, the man whom God was with in everything he did. Abimelech was blessed by God through Abraham. Why? Because God does what he says. God does what he says. And and Abraham planted a tree by the well as a monument to God's faithfulness, and he worshiped the Lord there. And in verse 33, we learn a new name for God. We've heard three names of God so far up to this point. Now we get a fourth one, El Olam, which means the everlasting God. God just revealed something to us about himself right there. That's not, a, that's not just like something we read in passing. That's something we need to stop and look at. And not only does this point to the eternal nature of God, everlasting, who has no beginning and no end, but it also speaks to the unchanging nature of God. Listen, we all know this. Time changes. People change. The weather changes. Our circumstances change. But the everlasting God never changes. That's why he always does what he says. As everlasting God, he is responsible for the grand scheme of all things. Only the everlasting God's plan could encompass eternity past to eternity future and then all of human history in between. And in that plan, it involved the everlasting God inserting himself into human history by being born as a baby and growing into a man so that he could be the new, the mediator of a new covenant through the shedding of his own blood. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died on the cross and rose from the grave to show God's everlasting faithfulness to generation after generation of those who rely on him and him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is the well of living water who gives everlasting life to all who come to him. Have you come to him? Have you come to him? If not, he said, Jesus promised this in the Gospel of John. I'll never turn away from anyone who comes to me. And he does what he says. So why not come? That's the reality that Abraham will need to hold on to in chapter 22, this this reality that God does what he says. Abraham's going to face the biggest challenge of his life. The biggest test of faith in chapter 22. We'll get there next week. And it's a reality, this reality that God does what he says. It's a reality that we need to hold on to as our own faith is tested over and over again. You may be waiting on God for a long time. You may be growing impatient. But listen, God does what he says. You may feel like your situation is impossible or unbearable. You may be totally confused by it, but God does what he says. You might feel angry or frustrated or distressed, but God does what he says. You may feel left out or abandoned, but God does what he says. You may not understand why you're going through what you're going through, and you may be in despair because of it, but God does what he says. Even when you 
Don't do what you say. God does what he says. God does what he says. You know what we saw in this passage today? The everlasting God did what he said he would do for Sarah. He did what he said he would do for Abraham. He did what he said he would do for Isaac. He did what he said he would do for Hagar. He did what he said he would do for Ishmael. He did what he said he would do for Abimelech. Because he's everlasting and unchanging, he'll do what he said he will do for you and for me. God does what he says. That's why we need to read his word over and over and meditate on it over and over because it tells us, it shows us that God does what he says. The Bible reveals God to us and in it we see his everlasting faithfulness to generation after generation. Like Abraham, our story is one of waiting and trusting in God to keep his promises. And the Lord has come, the Lord came to us as he said he would And he did for us what he had promised. At the appointed time, as God had said, he sent his son into the world to redeem us. And he, as he promised uh, to send his son back into the world, that's coming. That's a promise we're waiting on still. He's coming to put an end to evil, to, to judge all the earth, to make all things new, and to live with us in everlasting paradise. And until then, we continue to wait. We continue to trust that God does what he says. It's a simple truth, but it is absolutely vital to our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Praise God that he's given us over and over and over again in his word examples that prove this to be true. Amen? Father, we thank you that you do what you say. We thank you that we can, uh, no matter what, when we're confused, when we don't understand, when we are uh, distraught, angry, when we're joyful, we can rejoice that you do what you say. We can, we can trust that you do what you say when we don't know what else to do. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and you continue to do that. We pray, God, that as a church, as the body of Christ, we would continue to depend wholly and only on your unchanging word, the firm foundation that leads us to Jesus, in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. We love you and we pray this in his name. Amen.